The secret of being happy is accepting where you are in life and making the most out of every day. Or is it? Is there a secret to happiness that we can uncover by looking into the chemicals of our brain? We'll find this out today. Welcome back to the Neuroscience Meets Social and Emotional Learning Podcast, where we cover the science-based evidence behind social and emotional learning for schools and emotional intelligence training in the workplace with tools, ideas, and strategies we can all use for immediate results. I'm Andrea Samadhi, and on today's episode number 236, we have Dr. Loretta Bruning, the founder of the Inner Mammal Institute, She was a former professor of management at California State University and the author of Habits of a Happy Brain and Status Games, Why We Play and How to Stop. Her work has appeared in the Wall Street Journal, Psychology Today, Real Simple, and numerous podcasts. Loretta helps people to build their power over their mammalian brain chemistry reminding us that happiness comes from chemicals that we've inherited from earlier mammals, dopamine, serotonin, oxytocin, and endorphin levels. When you know how they work in animals, your ups and downs make sense. Our happy chemicals evolved to reward survival behaviors, not to make us feel good all the time, but you can feel good more often when you understand nature's operating system. Let's meet Dr. Loretta Bruning and learn together how to retrain our brain to boost our serotonin, dopamine, oxytocin, and endorphin levels for a healthier and happier life with this understanding of why these neurotransmitters are important for happiness to occur in that present moment of our lives. Welcome, Loretta. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. We've actually been focused on our brain as it relates to learning. And when I saw your book, Habits of a Happy Brain, I jumped to learn more about it because who doesn't want to learn more about our brain chemistry, especially when it comes to retraining the brain for happiness? Welcome. Hi, it's so great to be here. Well, thank you so much. I'm so excited about this. And as you saw from my questions, we've got a lot. And I really want to pick your brain on this because I think it's such an important topic that, um, you know, we all want to be happy, but do we really think about how we can improve our happiness or retrain our brain? So I just wonder, how did you start to get into this? How did you go from being a university professor to writing books about our brain chemistry and then connecting it to our inner mammal and how our brain is wired? Where did this all begin for you? Uh, Well, I grew up around a lot of unhappiness and I was always trying to figure out like, what is everybody so upset about? Mm -hmm. So when I discovered the field of psychology, I was very interested. But I never felt like, oh, this is it. This explains everything. So I kept reading psychology in so many different um, silos, really, different disciplines, which I would not have been able to do if it were my primary profession. So I was a professor of management, but I was always sampling all different kinds of psychology, really trying to understand human emotion and human motivation. And then I raised children. 
and I had thousands of students. And so uh, people were not motivated in the way that I felt like the classic social science model, which sort of says, you know, you should just be nice to kids and let them do whatever they want and they'll be motivated. Well, that didn't really work for me. So I kept studying and I stumbled on evolutionary psychology, which didn't exist when I was in college. And that's what got me interested in understanding the um, the primal motivations. Got it. Well, there's so much to that answer, because as you were talking, you know, you grew up around a lot of unhappiness. That kind of made me think of something you said in another interview. And I'm actually going to link that interview to the show notes so people can go and listen to where you talk about that. But you said we're wired by our early experiences because this is when we have the most neuroplasticity. And it, it made me think really hard about this because, you know, I also had quite a bit of unhappiness growing up with one parent that was just really strict. And, and you mentioned one uh, parent that, that did the same. And then as a, as a mom, I want to be opposite of that. But now as I'm reading your book, I think, am I, have I leaned too hard the other way? Is there a balance? What should I know down to how my brain is wired and, and thinking about our early childhood experiences? What should we know right down to the neurons of our brain now? about this? Sure. Um, well, from the neural level, we have something called mirror neurons. So your kids are picking up, picking up your emotions and taking them in. So it's very valuable to know that. Now, just to, it's such a big question, right. but the simple answer is today's parents, they're so concerned for their kids to, to be happy. And if the slightest thing goes wrong, they're so worried about it. So your kids are drinking in your anxiety about that. So you're really doing them a bigger favor if you would model happiness and confidence in your own ability to manage whatever comes along, that's going to benefit them more. But in from the perspective of your question of like too strict versus too loose, um, yeah, that uh, it's hard to find the middle ground. But the big thing is because you are so worried about things that you are filtering through your own early pain. And the more aware you are of that, the more you can resist sort of um, uh, projecting that pain onto your child who isn't necessarily even feeling that. And when you were a parent, I'm just curious, what what did you notice about how you were raising your kids with, um, you know, how things were in your home? Well, as you said, I was determined to be the opposite of how my parents were. Um, and um, it's not... Um, it's not about strictness, but um, my mother did a lot of venting because she had very, very bad life in the past. Mm -hmm. But we had, a, you know, normal, I mean, no, we didn't have a lot of money, but it was like comfortable. I mean, if she grew up without food and I had food, so I didn't see what the crisis was, but she was acting like everything was such an emergency. Partly it was her life. And partly, as I've since learned, is that our brain projects emergencies onto things because that's what it's designed to do. So with my kids, um, I wanted them to be happy. I didn't want to say no. I didn't want a scene. I was so afraid of having a scene because when I was a kid, 
the scenes were so terrible. So I was afraid that if I said no, there would be a scene and then the scene would be blamed on me because that's what happened when I was young. And I just happened to have um, a husband who was sort of like me, which made it worse. Now, if I had another husband, you know, who was different, then that would have been a different problem. So life is complex. It sure is, especially when we're raising kids and, you know, learning about how our past is now influencing our present. Um, So if we just dive a bit deeper into this, um, we've been talking a lot on the podcast about trauma response and how when we're stressed or we experience overwhelm, we either are, we fight with anger and irritability or we flight where we like avoid the situation or we freeze and disassociate. And all of these reactions are hardwired from our early experiences. And I'm sure each of us, if we think about it, know which one we are when we have conflict, we kind of know, like I'm the, the type that will run. And, you know, so we all know which one we are. But once we're aware of our stress response circuit, what do we do with that? Is it enough just to know that, you know, when something gets difficult, I want to run? Or what what should we do now once we know this? So it's great to know that you can build a new pathway to have a new response. But it's hard because your early pathways are so big. They're big because of the myelin. I I can't. I don't think we talked. Did we talk about myelin, which builds your early experience into super highways? And they're big because of repetition. And they're big because of cortisol. So repetition, emotion, and youth build huge neural pathways. So it takes a huge amount of repetition to build a different pathway. And we don't really want to do that because when I'm in the middle of fighting or flighting or freezing, my verbal brain justifies it and says, well, I'm doing the right thing. And it's so good at coming up with facts to justify what you're doing. So let's talk about happiness because, you know, most of us don't usually think about what's going on at the brain level when we're feeling happy. You know, we do either what makes us feel good that makes us happy, or we don't do what makes us feel bad, or we do things in the moment that make us feel good and they make us feel bad later. And so if I'm thinking I want to move towards this or I don't, this makes me feel good or it doesn't. What's behind this feeling of happiness? What are the four chemicals that you've discovered are making me move towards something or move away? Sure. So um, I just have to say, I can't say that I discovered them, of course, you know, so just clarifying that I didn't say that. Um, But I stumbled on mentions of these chemicals while reading primatology, actually, of all things, Um, because, you know, everybody hears about chimpanzees. And then I would read one little mention of one little chemical and another chemical. And then I would go from one species of primate to another and like, wow, it's the same thing. But there's very little discussion of that. And the people who focus on one primate don't talk about another and the people who focus on one chemical don't talk about another. So I sort of connected the dots. So these are chemicals that make you feel good when you meet a need. And the good feeling is designed to do a job. It's not to make you happy about sitting on the couch. It's to motivate action toward whatever stimulated the chemical. And uh, dopamine is the core one, which gives you that feeling of excitement 
when a need is met and that builds a pathway and then you anticipate meeting a need and feel excited in advance in the future. And then serotonin and oxytocin are more focused on social needs. We could talk about that. And endorphin is the last um, sort of what I call happy chemical. So to intentionally retrain our brain to more, more happiness, do you think a good formula is that we should be aware of what are we doing to increase dopamine? What are we doing for endorphin, oxytocin, and serotonin? I've never thought about it this way before, but... Is, would you say that would be a good thing for us to all know? Yes, absolutely. But the complication is we all have our dopamine habits from the past. You have your serotonin habit from the past. So we all tend to stimulate them in the way that we're used to. So if you say, I want to be happier and just repeat that behavior, like a simple example would be a person who feels a dip. So they go to the vending machine and buy a candy bar. That's a kind of dopamine behavior that you don't necessarily want. So the challenge is to understand each chemical so you can wire yourself to stimulate them in new ways. So can you give me an example of what would be some healthy ways to increase dopamine? Is it through food or is it through exercise? What, what are the most known ways to, to increase dopamine without medicine? So the simple answer is to move toward a goal. That's what stimulates dopamine. If you think about it from a monkey perspective, they wake up hungry in the morning. They're not going to eat unless they find food. So they scan their surroundings. And when they see a piece of fruit, dopamine triggers a feeling of excitement. They move toward it. And each step closer triggers more dopamine. So when you have a project, you're feeling good because you have a reliable way to keep stimulating dopamine because you're moving toward something that you anticipate a reward. But if you have some pie in the sky goal and you think, oh, someday I want to be, you know, this, and then you're not taking action and getting closer to it, your brain doesn't release the dopamine. Now, People may have a goal, but then when they can't move toward it, they get really upset. So I talk about having a short run goal, a long run goal, and a middle term goal so you can shift between them so you can always be moving towards something. Oh, I like that. I like breaking down goals throughout the year and then checking to see where you are on a quarterly basis just because it's too difficult to imagine most of us all the goals that we want to hit at the year end when we're starting out or wherever we start setting our goals. So I like breaking it down. What about endorphins? So I understand this in relation to exercise. So I wipe out and uh, my, my legs are cut and I can't stop running and I keep running and endorphin comes in and masks the pain. Is that what endorphin does? Or what, yes. What when you say I wipe out, I'm thinking of surfing. Is that what you're uh, thinking of? That you, no. your legs are cut? What? what no, I, you... wish, I wish. I wish. Yeah, I was going to say you don't. Floral. No, uh, I hike um, every morning. I hike, and and the other day I did. I I call it I wipe out because I like took a tumble on the rocks, and I've got rocks all cut in my leg, and and I can't stop and go slow because I've got a certain amount of time that I have to get back for appointments or interviews. And so it was funny because I had just done an episode on pain being in our 
originating in our brain. And I'm thinking, okay, I really feel the pain. I can feel the cuts on my leg as I'm running. But then as I kept going, because I had to get home, I couldn't go slow. I could feel the endorphin or something taking over and it no longer hurt. And I was able to get to the, to the car and then get wiped up before anyone could see what I looked like all, all cut up and stuff. But how we're, we're not, is that what you would say would be the use of endorphin? It masks when you're hurting so you can get through something to the other side. That's exactly endorphin, but we don't have conscious control of that. It's triggered by actual pain. It masks pain so that an animal, when their flesh is ripped by a predator, can continue to run to save their life. But it doesn't last because you need to feel pain in order to protect injuries. So it's just meant to be there temporarily. And the experience you mentioned is, I think, confused by adrenaline, which is a separate feeling. Um, but um, endorphin is more like if I fall and people come over to me and say, are you okay? And I say, yeah, I'm fine. And then 15 minutes later, I feel like, wow, I'm really hurting. And then so oxytocin and you said serotonin are the two social ones. And I don't know I've, uh, if I've ever thought about what you would do to increase serotonin until I started using this brain stimulator. I'd interviewed someone from the Fisher Wallace um, brain stimulator and it, it one of the um, outcomes of it, you put this device on your head and you turn it on every morning and it increases serotonin and melatonin. And I'd never heard of this before. I thought, well, the only way to increase serotonin would be through medicine from what I knew. Do you have you heard of any other ways to increase serotonin and oxytocin that could be healthy for us? Sure. So I'm not a big fan of external solutions because these chemicals evolved to motivate you when you're in the appropriate situation when that chemical will create a survival behavior. If they were on all the time, they're not meant to be on all the time because then you would have the wrong behavior for that moment. So if you understand the moments that are meant to trigger them and then construct that kind of situation, that's the job they're designed to do. So oxytocin is released when you feel social support. So it's designed to motivate you to create a reciprocal mutual support so that you have a better opportunity to meet your needs. So if I felt oxytocin all the time, then I would trust people I shouldn't trust. So it's not meant to just flow for no reason. It's meant to motivate me to construct a social network and to make good decisions about when to trust. Serotonin, this is a complicated one. So my perspective on it is not like anything you've heard elsewhere, but I stumbled on monkey studies that showed that when a monkey is in the dominant position in its social hierarchy, then it gets a moment of serotonin. Now, um, social hierarchies in mammalian groups had been observed for a whole century. And we don't hear about that today because it's so taboo and conflicts with what we want to believe. But um, when a monkey gets in that position of social dominance, it's so easy to see, like if you're playing poker and you draw a good card, you're like, yes, you know, I want to win. 
So that's a natural motivation. And it's so taboo to not only talk about, but even to perceive it in yourself. And yet it's so obvious that this is what people care about. Now, it's not aggression, and that's what's important to know. It's what I call it calm confidence in your own strength, in your own relative advantage. And how can you do that? You can't win every minute. So you have to have realistic expectations is what I talk about. <laughs> well, I do like having a strategy to to do uh, or to increase these chemicals in a healthy way. So I like thinking about it like this. So how does our brain then rewire itself uh, after it's been wired early in life? So we had these situations that make us who we are. How did we now learn to rewire and, and do things differently? Sure. So um, the simple answer is repetition. If you design the new habit that you would like and you repeat it, then you will build a pathway just by constantly or continually stimulating that pathway. And then electricity will flow there more easily and it will start to feel natural. And repetition is sort of a chicken and egg problem because people think, well, why would I want to repeat that behavior if it doesn't feel good now? And the answer is it will feel good once electricity flows there and the things you already enjoy, it's just because something built that pathway in your past. So what about some vicious cycles that we should be aware of um, and ways to get out of cycles or resist habits that made you feel good in the moment and then bad later? How do we break those vicious cycles? Sure. So um, an example of a vicious cycle I talk about is um, like, let's take the person I said who buys a candy bar when they're in a bad mood. So in the short run, it actually works. And that builds the pathway that tells your brain the next time you feel bad, go get a candy bar. And you're not building any other pathway for dealing with that situation. And because electricity flows there so easily, you don't even notice the link. You don't even realize that you were feeling bad when you had that concept of getting the candy bar. So the first step is to recognize that initial moment, uh, which is to accept the, the initial bad feeling that you're wanting to change and then design the new pathway that you'd like to have. So uh, I'll use a very simple example. Um, uh, I, in the morning when I get dressed and I had this drawer that I couldn't close because there were too many socks in it. And every day, like it's a frustration of not being able to close the drawers. But if I try to look at the drawer and what's in it, I have a bad feeling of like, oh, I never wear that, but I might someday. And what about that one? Oh, I never wear that, but I wish I would need it. I want to you know, someday I'll play tennis again and then I'll need those socks. So one day I decided, okay, I'm going to set a timer and I'm going to work on that drawer for 10 minutes. And I felt so good once I got it done that I said, you know, whenever I have a bad feeling, I'm going to set a timer and just tackle that problem for 10 minutes and then give myself a reward after. And that builds a pathway that gives you confidence in your own ability to tackle any problem by breaking it down into small chunks, even when you're feeling bad. 
Now, as I'm listening, I'm thinking of some times that I've wanted to change habits that were really difficult. And, you know, I could listen to what you say about, okay, well, you know, we're going to do this and we're going to, it's going to get easier, but some are, I'd say almost impossible to change. What do you do at that time uh, when something you're just really struggling with changing a habit? So I have a lot of tools in my book, Habits of a Happy Brain, um, but they're all tools to make it easier to do these things that I'm suggesting. So um, one example is to break that bad habit into smaller chunks, because um, if it's a really entrenched bad habit, you've had it a long time, it's a big part of your life. You can't change your whole life just like that. So you could focus on one thing. So many people would think about a habit of something you're putting in your mouth uh, that you don't want to. So you could just have specific situations, you know, whether it's food, cigarette, a drug, whatever, uh, alcohol, you could say, okay, I'm going to uh, first build a new habit to not do that at this time of day or in this situation or some something like that. Um, and then tackle one at a time, one challenge at a time. Another um, tool is mirror neurons, which activate when you see other individuals get a reward or experience pain. So if I put myself in a situation to see someone else, simple example would be whenever I have a hopeless feeling, I'm going to ride my bicycle for 10 minutes. And then you think, well, that doesn't feel like fun. I don't want to go ride a bicycle. But if you spend time with a person who just loves to bicycle, like they can't stop, then it helps you take in that good feeling, maybe bicycle with them. Uh, you think, oh, I can't get my bicycle to work, but they go with you and they just love getting your bicycle to work. So put yourself around someone who loves the behavior you would like to wire in. And um, finally, another example is to be, another tool to make this easier is to be creative with rewards. So if you reward yourself for trying to do something new, not trying, but doing something new, then you build an association in your brain. The good feeling of the reward gets associated with the new behavior you want to learn. So how can you reward yourself? Well, you could have a cookie, but then you think, well, then I'll just wind up eating cookies all day, which is a, a you know, a sort of a joke in Alcoholics Anonymous because there are times in life where it is better to have a cookie than to do what you were doing. However, if you have a wider toolbox of rewards, then you're not so dependent on a new bad habit to replace the old bad habit. So an example of that I use is listening to comedy. So whenever I have this challenge, I'm going to listen to comedy for five minutes and have it already on my phone so that it's there to use when I need it. This is helpful. So if we go into chapter two of your book, you talk about meet your happy chemicals and you go really deep into the chemicals and 
you say that your dopamine circuits are built from your past experiences that we've been talking about and that dopamine builds a neural template that helps you to find your rewards all built from our life experiences like the child who discovers a berry patch with their mother triggering dopamine with that whole life experience so what happens to the rush this person feels later in life so remembering an experience like that um how do those early childhood wirings translate into the ups and downs? So that's a positive one. We talked about some negative things that we're remembering. How do they now translate into ups and downs later in life? Sure. Um, well, so first the idea is that uh, if you had a hunter-gatherer life, you wouldn't have a supermarket or a refrigerator. So you would starve if you didn't continually seek and find. So we've inherited a brain that's designed to seek and find. So when you find something that meets a need, you get excited. But that feeling of excitement is not meant to last because then you just sit on the couch and you wouldn't maybe trick five miles to find water, which is what our ancestors did to stay alive. So the expectation in modern society that you should just feel great every minute of every day without doing anything is not very realistic. So when the happy chemical is triggered, it's quickly metabolized and then it's gone. So we all have ups and downs. And the idea, it, what, I, what I explain in the book is when you have this down, instead of thinking of it as, something's wrong with the world, something's wrong with me, is to say, I'm in neutral. I'm in neutral means it's the moment when I've already met a need and now I get to decide what am I going to do next? Where do I focus? What's the next step that I want to take to invest my energy in meeting my needs? And it's nice to have that neutral in between um, steps uh, so that you don't just keep running in circles and doing the same thing. Because for the person who wrote the book on happiness, we're not happy all the time, right? I didn't start thinking about this until I started reading your book and looking at the chemicals and thinking, I'm happy when I'm doing this. And then I'm neutral. I, you know, like you just said, I'm, I wouldn't say I was happy or sad. I'm just doing what's next. And then I can pinpoint when I'm doing something that's challenging. I'm happy here and then neutral again. So it's kind of unrealistic to think that we're going to be happy all the time. We have these waves. Would you say? Yes, yes, exactly, exactly. And uh, when you have realistic expectations, this is my second book, it's called The Science of Positivity. Realistic expectations is what allows you to not make a big deal of these things. Oh, you said, some, um, so if, if you're down, if you're in neutral and you see it as crisis, something's wrong, then you may, your brain looks for what's wrong because that's what your conscious cortex is designed to help your inner mammal by finding facts. So when you're sad, it looks for, oh, something bad must be going on. It's like if you smell a predator, you look for evidence of a predator. So when you decide, you know, when you feel bad for a moment, if you look for bad things, you're going to find them and then you're going to get yourself into a spiral of negativity. So it's much more helpful to say, I'm going to have ups and downs. 
I don't have to focus on the down. I can shift my focus to what is the next step I need to take to meet my needs. And that will stimulate more happy chemicals. And then, so thinking about this for parenting, just translating this whole thing into now I've got my daughter in the car, she gets into the car and I'm watching her behavior. I want, I obviously as a mom want her to be happy, but then she goes into what's just neutral. And I'm thinking, oh no, what's wrong? What happened? So now I'm trying to translate this into other people that, you know, you don't have to be so concerned that other people aren't happy all the time, allow them their space to have their ups and downs, right? Exactly. Very good. Exactly. And uh, I I was such a, a big, this was, I was such a big offender in this, like, because when I was young, I was always worried that my mother was going to have an, an, the next meltdown. So I was constantly anticipating and queuing into signs and looking for that. So when you look for something, you create it. And the uh, I'm not saying that in a new agey way, but um, we have 10 times more neurons going from the brain to the eyes and ears than we have in the other direction. And that means we're equipped to look for evidence more than we're equipped to just interpret whatever we stumble on. So you are looking for evidence to prove whatever it is that you're worried about, but you have the power to shift your focus and to say, and when you're with your daughter, it's like, I'm going to focus on what's the next step. What's the next reward that we get to invest our energy in. And your daughter will pick that up from you, but her reward structure will be maybe a little different. Right. Right. But just sometimes it's, it's hard to let others be what they're supposed to be. We don't have to always be creating happiness in families, just let everyone be. And then we all can co-create happiness. Would you say that is how it works? Yes. Yes. That's great. And yeah, with couples, it's a really big thing. Um, with some couples, you know, one person is worried too much about the other person's happiness. Um, in other couples, someone um, actively blames their unhappiness on the other party. And this easily happens because when you don't have a relationship and you want it, that's a goal. And so every step toward that partner is so exciting because it triggers dopamine. But the minute you have them, they are no longer a goal. They stop triggering your dopamine and then you don't know what happened. So you blame them. And that's a real big impediment to relationships. Oh, for sure. This is interesting. So what about endorphin, the other neurotransmitter that we've talked about that masks pain for a short time? And it's only released if you push past your capacity to the point of distress and allows you to move forward. And I mentioned that we recently did an episode on chronic pain and um, thinking of ways to retrain our brain using mindfulness and meditation along with other strategies. But endorphin doesn't seem to be a long-term solution. Um, like you said, you know, even mixing it up with adrenaline. So how does it even contribute to our happiness if it's a short-term solution? Why, why do you include this one as one of your four? Well, I included it because it was the first one that was discovered. So it's the one that was already well-known, gets a lot of attention. And as you know, many people are promoting the idea that exercise is the path to happiness. 
I don't agree with that. Um, so uh, that's why I explained. So, so many questions in what you asked, but here's the idea. Um, in the animal world, uh, like a gazelle lives with predators around it all the time. So if it said, I'm not going to go out until the world is perfectly safe, then it would never go out and it would starve to death. So instead it goes, um, it only um, reacts to a predator when it picks one up immediately there. Um, but we humans can imagine predators all the time. So we can drive ourselves crazy with threats by just focusing on them. And anything that shifts your attention makes you feel good just because you can't, you're, you're not investing in imagining the predator when you're doing something else. So that's, I think, how people get into this running to the point of pain as the solution, because it's structuring their life. Um, uh, when you exercise, when you get the endorphin high, it's distracting you, but it's not meaning your dopamine, serotonin, and oxytocin needs. To me, it's just distracting you from, from negative thoughts. Now, it can meet your dopamine needs when you have an exercise goal. It can meet your oxytocin needs when you socialize around exercise. And it meets your serotonin needs when you feel pride, pride in your accomplishment. However, there are thousands of other ways to meet those needs. So if you use exercising to the point of pain as the only one, you're going to damage your body. For sure. For sure. What what would you suggest then would be a good way to get this neurotransmitter another way? So we can get a little bit from laughing. And I was very amazed to learn that, but laughing triggers deep abdominal muscles that don't get a lot of workout and it, it, they sort of get a, a jiggle. And that's why laughing feels good. And I think um, sometimes you have to make a conscious effort to allow laughter in your life. I explained that um, there's a few reasons people um, don't have as much laughter as they could. Uh, and, and just to, to be clear, you only get a little bit, but then you could laugh um, again. Um, but I think it has to be a real laugh. And um, many people squelch their laughs because they think it's not nice. Um, and other people don't get to laugh because they always go along with the movie that someone else wants to watch that they think isn't funny. Um, and in my case, um, I think a lot of things aren't funny. So I actually maybe have to go through like a long list of stuff. And then when I find something I love, like instead of watching it now, I put it on a list and, and I have it when I'm in a bad mood. So um, it takes a little planning. Well, it's interesting. I remember I, I was talking on one podcast at some point about uh, being serious with my kids all the time. I'm the one that's making sure that we're getting our homework done. And something happened. I don't know what it was. We were talking about the movie, The It. Something in that conversation, we're laughing our heads off in the car and it hit me. Oh my goodness. I've never laughed with my kids. And I had no idea that it released that neurotransmitter, 
but just it was to me like why have i not done this before because i'm the one being so serious the one making sure we get home we do our homework we eat our dinner we put our clothes away we go to sports and i was like wow how have i missed that yeah you know i didn't know any of this until my youngest left for college oh wow <laughs> yeah wow. it's yeah. really sad mm-hmm. i wish i could do it over <laughs> We could talk about oxytocin now and trust. So if you're standing in front of someone and they just feel off for some reason, what is happening to you at the brain level? Is is your oxytocin only secreted when you trust someone? Is that how it works? Well, so I wouldn't say they feel off because that's implying that it's in them. So it's, it's in you that... Um, your brain is constantly making decisions about when to trust and when not to trust. So um, how do you know that? Well, you, you want to trust, that feels good, but then disappointed trust feels very bad. So you want to avoid disappointed trust, which is a, a cortisol uh, response. So we're all wired by this big collection of my past oxytocin experiences and my past cortisol experiences. So we're all navigating the world, trying to go toward things we trust and away from things we don't trust. And it's not logical because if you go to a sporting event, if you're a person who loves that and, you know, like a thousand people jump up at the same time and get excited about something, So that's an oxytocin feeling. You trust those people because they're having the same response as you. They're on your side, but they're not really going to be there for you. So we have these um, like illusory oxytocin experiences because we are descended from herd animals, but we really don't want to follow the herd all the time. The herd gets on your nerves. So we look for these sort of temporary virtual herds to fill in the gap. And so if we think about oxytocin building a pathway with our life experience, so if we've had maybe a low trust situation in our past, does that mean we've, you know, wired a low trust pathway and we're probably not going to trust in the future? Is that how it works? Well, in that specific situation. So a classic example would be if you date someone and you have a bad breakup and then you can't stand to look at anyone who is in whatever category, you know, if they liked baseball, then you meet someone who likes baseball and you're not going to trust them, even though that had nothing to do with the breakup. That would be like a, a an example of how our brain works. And so how would you rewire an old trust pattern? So this is hard, um, which is why so few people do it. Um, so I, I, um, I learned a lot by, as I said, by studying monkeys and, uh, researchers and have gone out and studied how monkeys decide whose fur to groom. So if I groom your fur, I would like you to groom my fur, but you're probably not going to do that. So if I insisted, I will only build bonds with people who reciprocate immediately, that's not going to work out well. So even a monkey can sort of um, have a mutual reciprocal situation um, without real conscious thought. 
So a monkey grooms your fur and then you reciprocate either when a predator attacks and that person you groomed helps support you and save your life, or you groom their fur and then during mating season, either they babysit for your child or they mate with you or something like that. But if a monkey grooms someone's fur and they never reciprocate, the monkey eventually is like, oh, I'm going to go groom someone else. So um, so that sort of keeping score, keeping inventory, I remember when my parents did that. You know, they, they were very conscious, like, well, you invited them and they gave you that. And then now you have to, you know, reciprocate. And uh, that's how mammals are. And when someone doesn't reciprocate, then um, you may get very annoyed and frustrated. But if you become conscious of this thought, this thought loop, then you find your own power and say, it's not in them, it's me. I'm constantly making decisions about who I invest my energy in. And I have a choice. I can make some adjustments. And it doesn't mean I'm going to buy you a car because I want you to be my friend. But it's like, and it doesn't mean I'm going to be at war with you because I bought you lunch and you didn't buy me lunch. But it's just constant, small, subtle decisions that we make of I'm going to build a bridge toward this person and they may not cross it today. But over time, if I build a bridge a little bit toward a lot of different people, then one day one person will cross it and another day another person will cross it. And that's how you find your tribe or your friends is the people you cross bridges with and they cross back a bit. Yes, exactly. And when you say you find your tribe, um, it doesn't have to be a pre-existing tribe. My tribe is the social network that allows me to feel safe. And your tribe is the social network that allows you to feel safe. Now, if you want to plug into a pre-existing network, that has costs and benefits, let's say. Okay. What about now the the final neurotransmitter, serotonin? Um, it's flowing in our brain as we seek what we that feeling of being important or being respected. So how do our past serotonin experiences create our present expectations? So thinking about that loop. So the simple example would be um, <clears throat> someone has a great experience in high school that they're the star of the play and gets a round of applause or they're, they kick a great soccer goal and get attention. So whatever made you special when you were young, your brain built a pathway and you really want to do that again today. And everybody in the world has their own pathway and you have to share the world with 8 billion other people who want to be special as much as you do. So it's challenging. And that's why the simple example is, you know, the person who got a round of applause, they think they'll be happy forever if only they could get a part in the next play. But then when they get the part in the next play, they're, they think, oh, but this play is so small. I want to be in a movie. And then when they're in a movie, but then I want to be a star and then then I want to get an award. And so we always want more because 
your brain um, habituates to what you already have and you want that next thing in order to feel special or in order to feel rewarded. Got it. So if you were going to sum this all up and I've seen that you have a 45 day plan to rewire our brain towards happiness. What would you say we could do with these four chemicals to rewire our brain and be happier? Sure. So I focus on trying to build one new pathway at a time. Uh, It takes about 45 days of repetition to build one new pathway so that it flows. And that means on day 46, you're still going to do the behavior, but it's going to be easier. Um, And I also suggest a person might start not with their worst problem, but maybe with something smaller just to feel their power and and convince themselves that they really can build a new pathway. Um, Many people um, focus on the chemical that they're already good at. Um, But then over time, you want to focus on the chemical that you don't think you're good at so that you can build new ways to turn that on. But one new way at a time, and I um, give a lot of suggestions in the book so that um, you can find a variety of ways to get that chemical. And I missed asking you this, but why do we create unhappiness? What's important with experiencing the opposite of happiness? So um, the bad feeling is cortisol. Uh, People have heard a lot about cortisol. There's a lot of discussion over it. Um, But um, it's the feeling that something really bad will happen if you don't meet this need. So maybe if you watch nature videos and you see that a lion tries to catch a meal and it fails. So if the lion fails, it's going to starve to death if it doesn't catch something. So it's that reminder of like, you better get this done or something really bad will happen. Now, our ancestors they didn't have the safety network that we have. So if they didn't find water, they would die in a couple of days. So cortisol evolved to say, hey, don't distract yourself with that, find water. But today, you know, if your other needs are met, then whatever triggered your cortisol in your past, that's what your brain is wired to look for that problem. So you are easily worried about that thing and I'm easily worried about that thing just because it happened in the past. But once you're aware of it, then when your brain starts turning that on, um, it's always anticipating potential threats, which is what is known as stress. Um, Once you're aware of it, then you can more easily tell yourself, this is not a life and death matter, but my brain is designed to make it into a life or death matter. And all I need to do is be aware that it's just a circuit. And if I shift my focus to what is the next need that I'm going to choose to meet and focus my energy on that, then I won't be focused on making a big deal out of whatever I'm making a big deal out of. So if I'm going to sum this all up, I'd like to give it a shot just to explain your book all in in from what I've got from this. And then you tell me if I've got it right and if, if I've missed something. So there's four happy chemicals in the brain. There's dopamine where I'm going to look and find the joy in my day. 
And then I'm thinking about um, that sometimes we're not always there. And so we have to be okay with the fact that we're in our pause mode. So we're not always going to be happy every second of the day and thinking about others. They don't have to be happy either. Mm-hmm. And then we've got our endorphin that masks the pain. Um, and I don't know how to expand on that. If, if I've got endorphin that masks the pain to get me through the only way I can think of this is, is when I was running and I was able to keep going. Um, but oxytocin it makes me feel that I can trust others. Um, it allows me to form relationships. Then serotonin gives me that. I get a boost when I'm doing something that makes me feel maybe important, like maybe releasing the podcast out into the world. And, and I get, you know, notification that people in all these countries are listening. I think, wow, this is great. And I feel really good. But then I've also got to be aware of the, the loops in this, that there, that I have to make room for other people that are doing things in the world too, that not just focus on, on my, what I want. What, what would you say with my takeaway of that? Yeah, great. Um, so it's natural to want serotonin all the time, but just to accept that you're not going to have it all the time. And let's use a simple example. If someone else's podcast is suddenly the talk of the town, that it's natural for your inner mammal to see that as a survival threat. So you have to consciously shift your brain and, you know, if there's healthy ways and less healthy ways to do it. Like if you, many people are competitive and like, you got to find something wrong with their podcast. Um, But another way of doing it would be to say, um, what's something new in your podcast that you're proud of that you can invest your energy in so that you'll feel even more proud of it in the future. Got it. Got it. And did I get, um, did I expand on endorphin? Would you say anything else about the fact that we, it, it comes into mask pain? We're not always going to have pain like through exercise or we're going to break our bodies down. So so here's the thing. You don't need endorphin. That's the idea. You need the others, okay. but you don't need endorphin. But it's great that you have it for emergency. If something goes wrong, then it will be there to help you deal with it. But you can sprinkle it in to spice up your life um, with laughter. And even um, there's thinking about, um, I get a little bit every time I get up. So to get up as often as possible. So here's a simple example. Oh yes, yeah, so let's use my um, my water. So before this podcast, I went to fill my water glass and then I left it in the other room. So instead of cursing myself, oh darn, why do say, wow, I'm gonna get some endorphin when I go get my water because just that sprint into the other room give me a lift so is there anything loretta that's important that we've missed i think we've really covered it but is there anything on your mind that is important that we haven't talked about um well social comparison is a huge thing that i always want to make sure that i get into so um animals are mammals are constantly making social comparisons 
because if a monkey reaches for food near a bigger individual, it's likely to get bitten. So a monkey compares itself to others before it reaches for food. And they're very good at evaluating my strength versus your strength. And when the monkey sees that it's weaker, cortisol is released and it pulls back and it looks for a situation where it could be stronger and then serotonin is released and it goes for the food. So that's, um, that's why people are always making social comparisons. And if you have a perfectly good life, you can ruin it with these constant social comparisons because it does release cortisol, the threat chemical, when you compare yourself to others and put yourself in the one down position, which people are doing all the time because they've learned that from others. This is the subject of my new book called Status Games, Why We Play and How to Stop. So when you're playing status games in your mind, you're blaming others. You're thinking they are doing it to you. They are putting you down. They are judging you. And it's so helpful to say, wow, I'm doing that myself. And it's my job to redirect, to focus on my own strength and stop keeping score for them. It's so powerful, Loretta, when we start putting our brain science into practice in our lives and see how, you know, how things from the past come into our present and even into our future as we're thinking about careers and where we're going. I want to thank you so much, Dr. Bruning, for sharing your habits of a happy brain and all your research on this podcast. For people who want to learn more about you and access your incredible video series that you've created, it's you've got a lot of free content. I'll put all the links to your website, innermammalinstitute.org, and they can click through your website and find you on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube. Thank you so much for this podcast. Sure. Thanks so much for the great questions. Thank you. If you're enjoying the Neuroscience Meets Social and Emotional Learning podcast, please don't forget to subscribe so you'll stay up to date with our new episode. While you're there, please feel free to give us a review or a five-star rating as it helps others find us. For more information on our programs, books, and tools for schools and the workplace, visit us at www.achieveit360.com.